This program is brought to you by the University of California, Davis on iTunes U. For more information, please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu. So, okay, let's get started. So again, just a reminder, so this coming Wednesday from 11 to 12.20, I'll be pre-taping the lecture for a week from Tuesday. So I'll have our regular lectures next week on Tuesday and Thursday. There'll be this special lecture on Wednesday that I invite you to attend. Um, but it will actually be for the 11.25 lecture a week from Tuesday where I'll be out of town. So you can either, I think they will show it here during the time, or you can watch the webcast if you can't make the pre-taping. Okay. Also, uh, problem set five is out. It's due a week from today. And problem set four solutions will go out tomorrow. Okay, so what I want to do today is to continue looking at some more of the approximation algorithms. And I want to start with the problem discussed in 11.5, which is disjoint paths. And the, let me talk about two versions of this problem, one of which is easy and one of which is hard. So in this situation, we have k sources, s1, s2, up to sk, and also k terminals, t1, T2 up through T sub K. And ideally, what we'd like is K paths connecting SI and TIs such that these paths are all, well, in the simplest case, edge disjoint. So, so let me comment that this type of routing problem comes up in computer networks in various settings. And if we don't care which source is connected to which terminal, we can actually set this up as a network flow problem. Okay, so what I can do is to create a dummy source S. Okay, so maybe I should also say what you're given is this and a directed graph G equals VE. So when we're talking about these paths, they're paths in this graph. And presumably, the sources and terminals are 
subsets of the vertex set. Okay. Yeah. Um, can they be? Uh, is the intersection empty or? Is the intersection empty? Yeah. For this purpose, let's assume that that these are two k distinct vertices. Okay. Now, one could also consider cases where they're not distinct, and in fact, for the later generalizations, it'll make some sense to do that. So at least for the case where they're distinct, though, what I can do is to have my regular graph. So this is the graph G. And I add to G a source S. And what I'm going to do is for each of the k sinks, I'm sorry, for each of these k sources, I'll add an arc of capacity 1. And similarly, I'll have my k <coughs> terminals. And I'll create a dummy sink. And each of them will be connected by an arc of capacity 1. And for all other arcs in the network, I'll set their capacities also to 1. Okay. And now, if I can find a flow of k from s to t, that flow will represent, in a natural way, k disjoint paths connecting these sources to these terminals. So a single network flow will do that. And if it's not possible to find k edges joint paths, what I will find is the maximum number of edge disjoint paths possible between these sources and these terminals. Okay, so if I find this, then I have k edge disjoint paths. Or if the max flow is some value r strictly less than k, then r is the maximum number of edge disjoint paths. Okay, and let me just comment that the book doesn't really talk about this variant in detail. Okay, it does mention it. OK, everyone clear on this? Here, if we sort of don't care which of these gets connected to which, then this formulation, the, the capacities of one on these edges assure that each edge will only be used on one path. That gets us our edge disjoint property. These assure that each source will only participate in one path. And similarly, these assure that each terminal will only participate in one path. Okay. All right. Now, one variant that we'll consider is to relax the edge disjoint property and instead say that each edge 
can be on up to C paths, where C is some constant. Okay, so we still want to find paths from the sources to the terminals, but now instead of an edge only being allowed to be on one of those paths, it can be up to C, where C is a constant, maybe 2, 3, or 4, or maybe even bigger. Okay? And maybe just to give some motivation, this would apply, for example, if you think of this as, say, an optical network, where each arc represents a link with multiple wavelengths, and C might represent the number of wavelengths where each path could use a link with a different wavelength. So in those sorts of settings, you get things like this. Okay. And I can easily modify this to handle this situation as well. Let's see how. Just raise the Sorry? Just raise the weights on the edges. Raise the weights on the edges. So which edges and to what? Uh, the in between S and T. Okay, in between. Well, I mean, like, so you do you do you, do you still want only to use one T or one terminal rather per? Yeah, I still only want to, you know, I want to sort so of find connections between yeah. sources and terminals. Right. So I mean, yeah. So I mean, like, you keep the 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 S to S one, S to S two. Those should all okay, remain yeah. one. So these all stay the same. And those all stay the same. And then you just right. raise the weights in but there to see. But all of these get boosted up to C. So now I can use each of these other arcs on up to C different paths. So it's an easy fix. Um, is there, out of curiosity, is there any benefit to keeping the arcs um, like from S1 to whatever um, at C. Okay, yeah. So technically, really, it doesn't matter if these are at 1 or C, but for the internal ones. Mm -hmm. I was just curious. Yeah, I was just curious. Um, well, actually, if you were allowed to use the this vertex, as it. an intermediate, then it might actually make sense. And actually, nothing we said prohibited saying, if I want to go, say, from S2 to TK that I could do it by first going to S1. So if we, you know, we say that the sources and sinks are disjoint, but that doesn't mean that they can't be intermediates on other paths. So, so yes, there is potentially a reason to allow this to go up to C as well. Okay. All right. Okay. So, but. So this is the easy version of the problem. But the hard version is where we actually pair up these source-sync pairs. And that's mostly what the book talks about. So now I don't want arbitrary paths, but I'm given a specific request. I want to find a route from S1 to T1, from S2 to T2 and so on up to SK to TK. And this is a very common thing that you're given requests. And in this setting, again, 
you could either ask for edge disjoint paths or you could ask for the setting where each arc could be on at most C. And so everyone understand the distinction that in this one, S1 might be connected to any one of these. In this problem, it has to be routed to T1. And that's a common thing that you get these requests. So when we change to this version, now the problem is NP-hard, even for the case where C is 1. And so even for the edge disjoint case, the sort of simplest one, it's still an NP-hard problem. Okay. But we will be able to have a simple algorithm that lets us approximate. Yeah. And by approximating it, I mean to get as close to the maximum number of pairs as possible. Okay. So let's go back, go on over to here. So now what we can imagine is that um, we find, let's say, let's say an optimal solution we'll consider to be I star, which is a set of paths. Okay, so we'll, in general, we won't be able to connect all K of our pairs, but only some of them. <coughs> so these are paths that we do. And let me let a few other notational things. This will be the number of paths in the solution. So this is the, our target goal, sort of, the maximum number we can satisfy. And we'll let P sub I star be the path <coughs> that connects SI to TI in I star. For some eyes, there won't be one, but at least for those that are satisfied, we'll do that. Okay. So now, our algorithm is going to be a fairly simple one. Okay. So we're going to use a greedy algorithm that says the following. Um, we're going to repeatedly. find the path pi with the fewest arcs that connects a new SI to TI. And so we're keeping track of which pairs we've connected. And among the unconnected ones, we look at this. And then when we do this, we 
delete the arcs in PI from our edge set E. Because the paths have to be disjoint, we can't use it on any other path. And we keep doing this until no new paths that connect SI to TI exist. So we'll take the shortest path possible that lets us connect two things, remove those edges, and then try and find a new one. Okay. So simple, greedy algorithm. It's pretty straightforward to implement this repeatedly using breadth-first search, okay, since that'll find paths with the fewest arcs. Okay. And the question is, how well does it do? Okay. Everyone clear on the solution algorithm? Pretty simple kind of greeting. All right, and we'll let our solution algorithm solution be i, okay. and p sub i will represent the path for SI to PI in I. Okay, so remember, we have the P sub I's with stars for ones in the optimal solution. Without them, what's that? So now, we're actually going to try and prove a fairly modest bound for this algorithm. So remember, I'm trying to maximize this. And in fact, all I'm going to try and argue is this property um, 11.16 which is that the number of paths I get in I is at least I star over 2 root m plus 1, okay. where, as usual, m is the number of edges. So you may notice that in some ways, as we've been progressing, we've been getting progressively worse bounds. Okay, we started with ones where we got like a factor of two for things like vertex cover. Then we went to set cover where we had a logarithmic error. And now we're up to a square root error. So at least in a certain sense, these are harder and harder problems to approximate. Take heart, though. The next one we're going to look at, we're going to do much better. So uh, we aren't continuing to decline. Okay. All right. So the idea for this proof is to break up paths into two parts. 
So we're going to consider a path to be long if it has at least square root of m arcs. And otherwise, it's going to be short. If it has less than root m. So um, the intuition behind this is that there can't be very many long paths in the optimal solution, okay. or in fact, actually, in any solution. Okay. Since if a long path has root m arcs, then after root m such paths, they're going to use up all the arcs in the graph. Okay? Remember, each arc can only be used once, so, so we have that. So, so over here, so one of our easy properties is that there are, at most, root m long paths. So what we can sort of think of is that if you go back to here, that this bound is really saying, so here, actually, let me re rewrite it over here, so I'll have it over as well. And let me rewrite it in a slightly different way, which is that I, and actually, I want to, this is actually a different bound. So this is. 1116 starred, since it's not quite what the book does, but it's actually, in some ways, a better bound. And it's, in some ways, actually easier to prove. Okay. Okay. So what I'm saying is I'm going to take the size of my solution, add 1 to it, and if I multiply that by root m plus 1, then I'll get something at least as big as I star. Okay, so what I'm going to do is break up I star into two parts, into its long paths and its short paths. Okay. So, so we can think of I star as being equal to I star sub L and I star <laughs> plus S. Okay. So these are for the long paths and these are for the short paths. And similarly, I is going to be broken up into I sub L and I S, though actually we're going to sort of ignore this, this part mostly and we're going to focus on this. So um, notice that this we said, okay, so I star sub L is of size at most root M. Because right, if we had more long paths than root M, we'd use up more than all the arcs in the graph. Okay. So 
this one times root m, okay, so these two terms give me at least the size of the big part of I star. Do you have a question? No. Okay. Everyone see that this is at most of size that 1 times root m gets me at least that. Okay. So now the rest of it is to show basically that I times root m, okay, that's this term, okay, is equal to or greater than the size of I star s. So let's say actually this is equal to. Okay. All right, so why is that? Well, to do that, let's think of what's going on. So let's go over here. So our greedy algorithm is picking longer and longer paths. So if you think about this greedy algorithm, there's an initial set of paths that they pick okay, that are short, and then eventually it'll start picking long paths. So now going back to here, what we can think of is that let's suppose that I is equal to P1, P2, up through um, P sub J. And this is in the order added. Okay, so I've renumbered my pairs so that these are in increasing lengths. So the length of P1 is equal to or less than the length of P2, and so on. And now I star sub S, the short paths is, let's say, P um, one star, P two star, up through P sub root M star. And let me emphasize that these are different indices. So I'm not claiming that these are the same pairs. And so I'm sort of renumbering these just for convenience. But we'll see in a minute why I want to number them this way. Okay. So notice what, what this is roughly saying is that for each element of I, there can be something like root M elements of I star. Okay, or actually, more specifically, this statement very directly is saying. What this is saying is that for each element of I, if I multiply it by root m, I get all the elements of I star sub s. So that's what this is going to sort of show, that I'll have p1 associated with this block, 
P2 associated with another block of up to root M pals. And where does this association come from? And the association is going to come from the following. That if you think about paths, so suppose that there's a path, suppose that we have PJ star is in I star sub S. And we want to ask that there are two cases. One is that P star sub J is also in I sub S. Okay, so I get to have the same path that existed in the optimal solution. Okay? So it's possible that they exist in both. Okay. Or two, B star sub J is not in I sub S. Remember, I sub S is the small paths in my greedy algorithm. Okay. Well, we want to ask then, okay, why didn't I do this? Okay, so what we have then is that SJ is connected to TJ by some path. And so this is PJ star. And the reason that this didn't happen, so I'm, so I'm saying, okay, so this is great. So if this happens, this is really good. Okay, we get to cover the same paths that are in the optimal. Okay. The troublesome case is where I don't do it. And actually, in particular, the troublesome case is where this pair is not covered. Okay, so PJ is not, and also no other path connects SJ to TJ in IS. Okay, so I never connected these pairs. Is everyone clear why this is sort of the only bad case? Okay, the bad case is where I connect this pair in the optimum solution. I don't find a way of connecting them in my greedy algorithm. Okay. All right. Okay. So why didn't I choose this path in my greedy algorithm? I'm running along. These are a pair of source and terminal that were not yet connected. Okay, I don't ever find a path for them. And the question is, why didn't I choose this path? Okay, ever. Yeah. It, at a certain iteration, it wasn't the uh, basically the longest path, and it got removed when another path. Okay. Well, I mean. I might have chosen not to use it if there was a shorter path available. Okay? But I'm saying the algorithm ended, and I never chose it. It could have been the arcs that made that path could have been removed. 
Okay, yeah. So the, the arcs in this path could have been gone by the time a path of this length became eligible. Okay. And notice that, okay, so the only way that I that this could happen is if some arc on PJ star is used already. And not only that, is used by a short path. Okay. Why can I be sure that it was used by a short path? Okay. So remember, this is a short path. It's an I star sub s. So what that means is that earlier on my algorithm chose some path that um, because if it was the shortest path, then it would have been it would have been found by our greedy algorithm. Okay. Whereas, yeah. like, uh, so the so this path. is a short path, and it was. So it had to be when, some path when all these arcs were available, I chose yeah. this one. For some other short path. Yeah. That wiped out at least one arc on this. Okay. Okay. Now, in fact, actually, this isn't even so critical. It's mostly just that this is a short path. Okay, so now the question is, is that this earlier path SITI, I'm saying that this is a short path. Okay. So among a short path, so, so let's, let's write all this down. So what we have So what we have is that we have short paths in I sub S can walk. Okay, so if my path uses up an arc on one of the paths in the optimal solution, I say that it blocks it. Okay. At most, root m paths in I star s. Okay. So this is a short path. It has at most root m arcs on it. So it can intersect a bunch of different paths, but at most one per arc on the path. Okay, because the paths in I star sub s are arc disjoint. Okay. So that's what this picture is supposed to represent, that P1 might block 
this group of root m has in the optimum solution. So I have this in my solution, and associated with it are maybe up to root m paths that get wiped out from the optimal solution. Okay? And then P2 is the next thing I choose. Okay? It could wipe out another group of root m paths. Okay? But the point is, is that if I look at paths in here, at most root m per path in my solution gets eliminated. So that's basically where this comes in. That if I look at the number of things in I okay, times root M, then that will give me at least the number of things in I sub S. You said at least root M per each item. I'm sorry? You said at least root m per each item. At most root m. And at most root m per each item in my solution gets eliminated. Right. So I'm saying is that if I'm saying how many could I lose? So sort of if you were trying to sort of pick the worst choice of things in I, okay, if you knew I star sub s, you would say, okay, I'll try and pick a path that is of length root m and cuts across all of these paths in the optimal solution. Okay? And then having done that, I can pick this one that cuts across all of these. Okay? Okay? And notice that as long as there are still paths here in this block, okay, these are still short paths, that means this must also be a short path. Because otherwise, I could have picked one of these, which would be shorter. Okay, so that's really just the intuition that we're saying that each path we pick here kills at most root m here. Therefore, the ratio of paths here to paths here is at most root m. Okay, yeah. Where do you get the root m? I mean, did you just um... root m is just for analysis purposes? Okay. Oh, so I... you just you just kind of just set it as root m. That's right. That's why I did this definition of a long path is bigger than root m. A short path is root m or, well, actually, long path is root m or longer, short is less than root m. Okay? And basically, because root m is big enough, I could say there couldn't be very many long paths. So in a sense, if you're thinking of not just is, but i, then there could be in here a final block of long paths. But that final block has at most root m paths in it. So just this plus one term alone says that by sort of arbitrarily adding a dummy long path to this set, this will account for the long paths in the optimal, and my real paths will account for all the short paths with this root m blow up. Okay. Okay. 
So, so it may seem that this looks pretty bad in terms of the analysis. Um, I meant mostly just that it's kind of loose, um, and being within a factor of root m isn't very good. Okay, if you have a big graph with 10,000 edges, that means you're within a factor of 100 of the optimal, which may seem pretty lousy. Okay. I will say that this should look like a rather pessimistic analysis, okay. that you're probably going to do better than that on typical graphs, since mostly a path you pick won't cleverly cut across a large swath of paths in the optimal, and also many of the short paths will be shorter than root m. Okay. So, so I will say that in the worst case, it can be this bad, or pretty close to this bad. But it is an unlikely thing to happen. It seems like there, is there any kind of tighter bound? Well, in fact, there is a hardness bound that says you can't do much better than this. Really? Okay. Yeah. So in fact, it's, it is not, as we showed for traveling salesman problem, it's also the case for here that it's not only hard to solve exactly, it's hard to approximate at least within a constant factor. So we can't do a lot better than this. So let me talk now just about the generalization a little bit. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about this too much. But now let's consider the case where we have a capacity C on the arcs. Okay, so now each arc can be on up to C paths. And I just want to comment that so in particular, let's consider the special case where C is 2. Okay. And let me just talk about the idea here. I'm not going to go through the analysis, but, I, but, but the idea that they use is one that's used in many network routing algorithms, so it's worth at least mentioning. So the idea is that in the greedy algorithm we just looked at, we looked at the length of a path just as the number of arcs. So for this, what we're going to do is introduce arc weights. Okay. So for this one, we're now going to, so, and let me just comment that this is just an analysis and algorithmic tool. The actual input graph is the same. Okay. So we still have an unweighted input graph. Okay, so what we're given has no edge weights. Okay, but what we're going to do is to add weights for algorithmic um, effectiveness. So we're going to add them that. And in particular, we'll let L of E be the length or weight of edge E. 
Okay, and this is not a constant. It'll be different for the different ones. Okay. And so now we have a new one, which is um, our new greedy algorithm, greedy with capacity C. And the basic idea is that as before, I start with an empty set and I set all the edge weights initially to 1. Okay, so notice that this is the same as in the original problem where a shortest path is just fewest edges. So if each edge counts 1, then it's the same. And now we just say that Again, let p sub i be the shortest path. Okay, so now shortest is with respect to these edge weights um, that connects a new SITI pair. Okay, and then you just add pi to i, delete the edges, and now the new thing is that, I'm sorry, don't, I'm sorry, don't delete the edges. Sorry. Sorry. Since the edges, since it's not edge disjoint, we can still use those edges in a, another path, potentially. Okay. For all E on PI, its length is updated to L of E times a constant beta. Okay. And again, we do this until um, there's no path. Okay. And I'll just comment that no path is a little bit trickier here since no path means no path with all edges on fewer than C previous paths. Okay. So if you want, you can also delete edges as soon as they're on C paths. Okay. This will, in a sense, do it automatically. Okay. And let me just say, so in this case, beta for C equals 2, we use beta equals m to the 1 -third. So, and what we're going to do then is um, say that sort of a, in this new thing, a short path is one where the summation of the lengths 
is equal to or less than beta squared, or m to the two-thirds. Okay. So it used to be that a short path was square root of m or less. Now a short path is m to the two-thirds or less. Um, I, won't, I won't talk about the details of why this works. But what I want, I'm, I want to just talk about the intuition of what's going on here. Okay. So what's going on here is that initially all arcs have capacity C. Okay. As we run and we use up part of their capacity, these arcs are sort of more valuable. Okay. There are fewer future paths they can be on. Now you can sort of think of that if you get to a point where you could take either this path or this path, and suppose that this path has capacity 2 and this one has capacity 1. Okay, this one has not yet been on any paths. This one has already been on a path. If you use this one, you're done with it forever. And no more paths can use it. If you use this one, though, you retain future flexibility. Okay? So what this is doing is saying, as you're using arcs, boost their cost so that it's better to use others instead. Yeah? Uh, if you don't delete the paths, though, doesn't it have, leave the potential for using an arc above its capacity? Okay, so the question is, could you use an arc above this capacity? Well. Notice that what goes on here is that you start at m to the one, you go to m to the one third, and when you get used twice, you get m to the two thirds. So actually, now a single arc has cost more than a short path. Still, only that one arc between uh, okay. sets of nodes. So you. As I said, so what you can actually do is to instead say that when you get to m to the two-thirds, then you're deleted. Okay. Actually, what the text does is just consider ones at m to the two-thirds or higher as ineligible arcs, below m to the two-thirds as an eligible arc, which is basically the same thing. Um, what you can actually do with, well, yeah, it's easy enough just to delete them as soon as you're, you know, you can just test if, if the current length is m to the one-third and you use it, then you delete it. So, that, so that's, that's, you know, it's not a difficult thing, though. You're right. You do want to keep track of it. Okay. And I just wanted to say that this actually comes up in all sorts of practical network routing heuristics. Okay of in various ways as arcs become more used, artificially creating a weighting scheme that raises their length and then finding shortest paths as a way of finding most desirable routes. So, so that, that's the only reason I really wanted to. Uh, in terms, of, deci in terms yeah. of deciding what M should be raised to based yeah. on the capacity, like? Yeah, I will say that this is more done, I would say, for the analysis than in this the exact value Beta. of m. So let me let me just 
talk briefly about the results. I won't prove them. But what we get from this is that, in general, what we have is that if C is greater than 1, you use beta equals m to the 1 over C plus 1. Yeah, so you can see for the case of C equals 2, it's m to the 1 third. And you get from this approach a 2C m to the 1 over C plus 1 plus 1 approximation. Okay, that is, if you take I and multiply it by this, it's at least I star. And so in particular, for the case of C equals 2, it's a 4m to the 1 third plus 1 approximation. Okay, so our constant in front went from 2 to 4, but what we're multiplying it by went from square root of m to m to the 1 third. So in a certain sense, as c gets bigger, your approximation algorithm gets better. Again, that, that sort of as much as I wanted to say. The, the analysis is somewhat similar to the C equals 1 case, but it is a rather more ornate counting argument than the one we did for the simple case of C equals 1. Okay, so I want to talk about one more today. And as I said, here we're going to show that for some problems, we can actually do really well approximating them. So I'm going to skip to 11.8, and we're going to talk about the knapsack problem. So I remind you that the knapsack problem has as input um, n value weight pairs and a weight limit, capital W. Okay. And what we want is a subset of the items um, S such that the weight of the set 
which is the sum of the items i in S of their individual weights is at most w. Okay, so we have this global weight limit on the items we pick and such that the value of S, which is the summation of the VIs in S, okay, we want this to be maximized. Okay, so we want the most total value given that we don't exceed the weight. And as you may recall, we can solve this by dynamic <coughs> programming. Okay. And the dynamic programming formulation I'm going to use here is a little different from the one you might have seen before. It's discussed at the end of 11.8. And the idea is to use um, a formulation where opt ij is defined to be the minimum weight possible using a subset of items 1, 2, up to i. So this is familiar. The first component i says I'm only allowed to use the first i items or some subset thereof. But what's new, okay, is I want the minimum weight such set that has value at least j. And it's fairly straightforward to fill in this table in constant time per cell. And the size of the table, okay, it has n rows. And the columns, well, in the simplest sense, you can think of the columns as going from zero up to the maximum value that you can get in a set. Okay. Now, why is this a little problematical? Because it could be a very large number. Okay, so it could be a very large number. So that's certainly one possibility that even if, um, yeah, so if the V sub i's, you know, could be, say, if they're n bit numbers, could be as big as 2 to the n. So it might be a very large table, and that's why, in fact, we're going to need to approximate it. But the other problem is that this is what we're trying to compute. So it's not actually known a priori. 
Now, there are two ways to deal with that. One is that this, or actually, let me, let me change this. Let me refer to this as v star, the best possible value. So v star is equal to or less than n times v max, where v max is the maximum of the individual v sub i values. Okay, since the best you can do is to take the single item of largest value and multiply it by n. Actually, this is actually greater than another bound, which is the summation of the vi's. It's certainly an upper bound on the best total of value you can get. In fact, it's actually possible to approximate v star to within a factor of two quite easily. So you can actually sort of start by assuming you know v star even. But what the book does is to use this. I just use this simple upper bound. Okay. All right. So, so if you do this, you can do it in order n v star, which is order using this, n squared v max, using that v star is at most n times v max. Okay. And yeah. So how does v max how is v max greater than the sum of all the values? Um, Vmax is, I'm sorry, well, Vmax is an individual item. Yeah, but you, say, the next one. Yeah. you say there is, it's greater than the sum of all the values. It should be in Vmax. Um, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. So I should, sorry, yeah. So NVmax, sorry, is greater than this, yes. But this, in turn, is certainly equal to or greater than v star. And in fact, this would only hold it with equality if everything fit in the knapsack, which would make the problem pretty trivial. Okay. Uh, I will say we also assume that all the w sub i's are equal to or less than the global weight limit w. Anything that's above that, you can just throw away, since it won't fit. All right, so we've got this, but as, as I pointed out, the problem is, is that Vmax could be quite large, and therefore this running time could be very slow. Okay, Vmax could in principle be something like 2 to the n, which would make this an unacceptably slow algorithm. Okay. So the idea, and this is again something that does come up in a few cases, not quite as universally as one might like, is to say we're going to use this algorithm, but what we're going to do is to scale the v sub i's so that there's not 
not too large. And I'll talk about that in a little bit more. So in particular, what I'm going to do is to get the following type of scheme. So our new thing is going to be that the input is going to be the vi's and the w's of i's, and our weight limit w, and also an error bound epsilon such that I want a solution S with the property that the value of the items in S times 1 plus epsilon is equal to or greater than the value in the optimum solution. So maybe just to give you an example, this means that if, say, epsilon were 0.1, it's saying, I want the value that you get when multiplied by 1.1 to be at least the optimum. In other words, you can be off by roughly 10%. If you add 10% to the solution you get, you would get at least the optimum. Okay? And notice that epsilon is an input to the problem. Okay? So you get to specify how good a solution you want. Okay? And what you would sort of expect is that the smaller you make epsilon, the harder it's going to be to find a solution that good. And in fact, what we're going to get is an algorithm that solves this problem. Okay, that is, it solves the problem to within a factor of epsilon, and it runs in order n cubed times 1 over epsilon. So what it's saying is that the smaller you make epsilon, the bigger this constant is that's going to be multiplying the running time. Okay? But for any fixed epsilon, it's polynomial in n. Okay. So it's saying, you give me a desired accuracy, and I can solve it to within that. So everyone understand where we're going for? Okay. In particular, I want you to notice that this, this is polynomial in N, and it's also polynomial in 1 over epsilon. In fact, it's linear. So because it has that, this is known as a fully polynomial approximation scheme. Okay. 
It's an approximation scheme because you get to specify how good an approximation you want, and that determines the runtime. Okay. All right. So the idea is the following. What I'm going to do is going to have a scale factor B, which I'll talk about what B is in just a moment, but and I'm going to use two quantities. So one is V hat sub I, which will be assigned V I over B and round it up. So the idea is that by dividing by B, I'm going to make these values smaller. And I'm going to solve the dynamic programming on the V hat sub I's. Okay, so I'm going to take the scaled version of the problem okay, and notice that, roughly speaking, this will reduce the value of the solution by a factor of b. Okay, so going back to here, remember that the size of the table and therefore the running time is a function of the total value of the optimum solution. So doing this reduces the runtime by a factor of b, roughly speaking. Okay, so this makes it faster. Okay, and I'm going to use another quantity, which is V tilde sub I, which is just the same thing, VI over B rounded up, but multiplied by B. So the key thing is that these two values differ just by a multiplicative factor. So the optimal solution is the same for both of these values. Okay. If you have a solution and you multiply the value of everything by 10, it makes the final solution 10 times as much. Okay. But if you do that for every solution, it doesn't change the relative goodness of one solution over another. So basically, I want to do the dynamic programming on these, and I'm going to do the analysis based on these to show my solution is good. Okay. So this makes the solution fast. This makes it close to the optimal. And in particular, what we have here is that vi plus b is equal to or greater than V tilde sub I is equal to or greater than um, the original VI. Okay, so just to say, so these V tilde values are always at least as big as the originals, and they go up by at most a factor of B. I'm not even a factor, an additive factor of B. Okay, so they're not too far. From it. Okay. And this is property 1134 in the book. All right. All right. So 
what that leaves us then is what should be, how do we set B? And the answer is we set B to epsilon over N times Vmax. So let's, let's just think about what this is. This is saying that um, we're going to divide through by B and um, yeah. So the bigger Vmax is, the bigger I'm going to have to make B. But the smaller epsilon is, the smaller I can afford to make B. So that's why these things are going in these two directions. Okay. And sort of the, the basic ideas then are the following. So we um, solve the dynamic programming on the v hat sub i's, well, actually, v hat sub i, w sub i. Okay. So one important property to note, the weights don't change. So any solution that was valid had weight at most capital W is still valid. So that's why I wanted to scale the values and not the weights. So I didn't play with validity at all. I only played with how good the solution was, not whether it was legal. Okay. And then, what's the running time? Well, remember I said the run time is order n squared Vmax. Okay. Well, in the tilde domain, what I now have is that Vmax changed, okay, because everything was divided through by B. So this time goes to order n squared Vmax over B, okay, divide everything by B. I'm ignoring the rounding here, the big O gets rid of that. Okay. Well, B is Vmax, so the Vmax disappears. Okay. I have a 1 over N, so that adds an N here, and uh, the um, epsilon becomes 1 over epsilon. So that's what gets me my order N cubed 1 over epsilon. Just a straightforward thing that falls out of the thing. And the last thing is what's the error? Okay, so this shows it's fast. And to get the error, notice that, um, okay, so. We get a solution S 
which let me remind you is optimal for the V tilde values. Okay, we actually solved the dynamic programming problem on these V tilde values, so this is the best possible solution if these were the real values. Okay, so we didn't approximate the solution for this setting. We solved it exactly. Okay. And that means that in particular, the summation for I and S of V hat of tilde is equal to or greater than the summation of the things in S star of VI tilde. Okay, that is, if I look at the values in the tilde domain, okay, where I've scaled them, this is the optimum solution for the original values, but it's no better than the solution I found in the scale domain. Okay. And now I'm all ready to do a fairly simple thing. So now let me show the result I want. So if I sum over the things in S star of the real values, okay, so this is the actual best value. Well, this is equal to or less than um, the <coughs> summation of the VI tildes um, yeah, for the things in S star. Okay, so the, the thing to remember is, let's go back over to here, that the VI tildes are strictly greater than the original value, I mean, sorry, are at least as large as the original values. Okay, so I took S star, I took the original values, I changed to the tilde domain, that makes the things the same or bigger, and this tells us that this is equal to or less than the summation of the items in S in the tilde domain. Okay. And then the last thing is to show that this is equal to or less than the summation of things in S. Well, the most that the tilde ones can be is the original value plus V. Okay, so this is by property 1134 we talked about. Okay, so what, look at what we have. We had the same set going from regular to tilde values. Then we switched to set S in the tilde domain. We switched to the original values plus B. And this can just be rewritten as NB plus the summation of the VIs, I and S. Okay. So what this is saying is this is the value of the solution we find. If you take that value and add N times B to it, 
you get something at least as large as the optimum. Okay. So this tells you directly that V of S star is equal to or less than NB plus V of S. Okay, so it's saying that if you take the value of the solution we find, add this to it, you get at least as much as the optimum. Now that's not quite what we wanted. We wanted a ratio rather than an additive one. And let me just comment that you can shift this to the ratio one just with a little more algebra and noting that the solution we find is at least as big as Vmax. It's easy to argue that that. Actually, if you want to make it a little simpler, you can even change the algorithm slightly and say, look at what you find with the dynamic programming, compare it to the single most valuable item, and take the better of those two. Okay, but the, the using this and this, you get going back to here this. That it's within one plus epsilon. Okay. But in particular, I want you to notice that the the main idea is really that we scale the items to make them smaller. How much we scale them depends on how much error we're willing to tolerate, and then we just use a dynamic programming to solve the scaled version optimally. So. And let me just comment that that sort of trick of reducing the data and then solving the reduced problem optimally does come up in other settings. So, okay, on a break now, let people go to the uh, distinguished lecture that's after this. I'll remind you it's over at 1131. And food's there also. So. The preceding program was brought to you by UC Davis on iTunes U. Please visit us at itunes.ucdavis.edu.